Section 14 of Smithsonian Institution, United States National Museum, Bulletin 240, Contributions from the Museum of History and Technology, Papers 34 through 44 on Science and Technology, by Museum of History and Technology. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Paper 39, Fulton's Steam Battery, Blockship and Catamaran, by Howard I. Chappelle. Part 2. Surviving Designs for Floating Batteries The designs of American blockships that have survived are those of the Chifanta, 145 feet long, 43-foot molded beam, 8-foot 6-inch depth in hold, and about 152 feet 9 inches on deck. She was to carry a battery of 22 long guns, 32-pounders on the main deck, 12 coronades, 42-pounders on forecastle and quarterdecks. She was to have been rigged to rather lofty and very square togonsels, and would have been capable of sailing fairly well, though of rather shoal draft, drawing only about 8 feet 6 inches when ready for service. She was sold on the stocks at the end of the war, and her later history is not known. Another and earlier design for a blockship, or floating battery, was prepared by Christian Berg, for Captain Charles Stewart in 1806. This was a sailing vessel for the defense of the Port of New York, planned to mount 40 guns, 32-pounders, on her two lower decks, and 14 coronades, 42-pounders, on her spar deck. She was to be 103 feet, 6 inches between perpendiculars, a 44-foot molded beam, 10-foot depth of hold, and drawing about 9 feet when ready for service. She was intended to be ship-rigged, but was never built. A few small sloop-rig block vessels also were built during Jefferson's administration. The sloop of war Saratoga, built on Lake Champlain by the Browns in 1813, was practically a block ship. A plan for a proposed guard ship or a floating battery was made by James Marsh at Charlestown, South Carolina in 1814. This was an unrigged battery, 200 feet extreme length, 50-foot molded beam, 9-foot depth of hold, to mount 32 guns, 42-pounders, on a flush deck with a covering deck above. Through the courtesy of the trustees of the National Maritime Museum, Greenwich, England, the Rigsarchivet, Copenhagen, Denmark, and the Statens Svihistoriska Museum, Stockholm, Sweden, the author has been able to illustrate in this article the designs of some of the early floating batteries. In the last quarter of the 18th century, the Danes had built sail-propelled floating batteries, or blockships, which were employed in the defense of Copenhagen. The British built at least one sail-propelled battery, the Spanker, in 1794. This was a scow of very angular form with overhanging gun deck, bomb catch-rigged, and about 120 feet overall, 42 foot 4 inches molded beam, and 8 foot depth of hold. She is said to have been a failure due to her unseaworthy proportions and form. The overhanging gun deck and sides were objected to in particular. She is called a stationary battery in her plans, which are in the Admiralty Collection of Drafts, National Maritime Museum, Greenwich. Controversial Descriptions The contemporary descriptions of the Fulton Steam Battery do not agree. This was in part due to differences between the dimensions given out by Fulton during the negotiations with the federal government and after the ship's construction was authorized. 
from the context of various statements concerning the projected vessel, such as that of the naval officers, the changes in the intended dimensions of the ship can be seen. For example, the officers state the model and plan shown them would produce a battery carrying 24 guns, 24 and 32 pounders, and a letter from Fulton to Jones shows she was to be 138 feet on deck and 55 foot beam. The final reported dimensions given by the supervisory committee are 156 feet length, 56 feet beam, and 20 feet depth. In addition, there are a few foreign accounts which give dimensions and descriptions. The most complete was probably that of Jean-Baptiste Marestier, a French naval constructor who visited the United States soon after the end of the War of 1812 and published a report on American steamboats in 1824. The steam battery is barely mentioned, though a drawing of one of her boilers is given. Marestier made another report on the American Navy, however. Extensive searches have been made for this in Paris over the last 14 years, but this paper has not been found in any of the French archives. References to the original text indicate that the naval report dealt very extensively with the steam battery. Some of his comments on the battery appeared in Procès Verbaux de Sciences de l'Académie des Sciences. Marestier considered the powers of the battery to have been overrated due to fanciful accounts of some layman writers. He was aware of the shortcomings of the double hole in a steam vessel at the then possible speeds, but he apparently thought two engines, one in each hull, and each with its boilers, would be better than Fulton's arrangement of boilers in one hull and engine in the other. He noted that the paddle wheel turned 16 to 18 rpm, and that steam pressure sustained a column of mercury 25 to 35 centimeters. The safety valve was set at 50 centimeters. Full consumption was three and five-eighths cords of pine wood per hour. In view of the access Marestier is known to have had to American naval constructors, shipbuilders, and engineers, it is highly probable that he not only obtained the building plan of the ship, but also some of the earlier project plans from the builders and from Fulton's superintendent, Stoutinger. It is therefore a great misfortune that his lengthy report on the battery cannot be produced. A French naval officer who investigated the ship, M. Montgueret, also wrote a description published in Notice sur la Viette Le Travaux de Robert Fulton. It should be noted in regard to what Montgueret wrote about the battery that in 1821 it had been considered desirable to disarm the ship. The engineer in charge, William Purcell, had reported that as there were not proper scuppers, dirt and water had entered the hull and had collected under the engine and boilers, causing damage to the hull and also that, with guns removed, the battery would float too high for the paddle-wheel to propel the vessel. So it had been decided to remove all machinery, as well as the armament. Montgomery's description, published in 1822, was taken from his report to the Minister of Marine and Colonies. It noted the battery was made of two holes, separated by a channel, or race, fifteen and a half feet wide, running the full length of the vessel. The two holes were joined by a deck, just above the waterline, as well as by an upper deck, and also connected at their keels by means of twelve oak beams, each one foot square. The vessel was 152 feet long, 57 feet beam, and 20 feet deep. Sides were 4 feet 10 inches thick, and the ends of the hull were rounded and alike. There were two rudders at each end, one on each hull, alongside the race. 
the eight paddle blades, each fourteen and a half feet by three feet, turned in either direction by stopping the engine piston at half-stroke and reversing the flow of steam. Rigged with two lateen sails and two jibs, the ship sailed either end first. The engine of one hundred and twenty horsepower was in one hull, and two boilers were in the other. Other sources, Orestier and Colden, in Process Verbeau de Sciences de l'Académie des Sciences, direct connected to the paddle-wheel, which was turned at 18 rpm. The boilers were 8 by 22 feet, with the fire-boxes in inside cylinders, each about 5 feet in diameter, and extending about half the length of the boiler from the fire-doors. Two fire-tubes, each about 3 feet in diameter, returned the gases from the inside end of the fire-boxes to the stacks at the firing end. Except at the fire-door end, the fire-box was completely surrounded by water. The boiler pressure of about six psi was not maintained, varying somewhat with each stroke of the engine. Water level in the boilers was indicated by tricocks. The safety valve was controlled by a counterbalanced lever. A jet of salt water was injected into the exhaust trunk to form a vacuum by condensation. An air pump transferred condensate and seawater into a tank from which it passed overboard. Only about a tenth of this water was returned to the boilers. Moncaret stated also that only the lower or gun deck was to be armed. No bulwarks were on the spar deck, only iron stanchions to which were fastened a breastwork of wet cotton bales when the steam battery was in action. The battery was designed to carry 30 guns, 32-pounders, with three guns in each end and 12 on each side, but no guns in the wake of paddle-wheel and machinery. Hatches to give air to the stokehold were located amidships. The battery was to have been supplemented at the ends of each hole by a Columbiad submarine gun, a 100-pounder, Fulton's invention, but these were not fitted. Provision was to be made in the fireboxes for heating shot, and a force pump with a cylinder 33 inches in diameter was employed to throw a stream of cold water, about 60 to 80 gallons per minute, for a distance of about 200 feet. This could be done only when the paddle wheel was not in operation. The paddle wheel was housed, the top fitted with stairs to the spar deck. The gun deck, over the race, was used in part for staterooms, of which the bulkheads were permanent. Hammocks for the complement of five hundred men were to be slung on the rest of the gun deck. The ship drew ten feet four inches, with the port sills about five and a half feet above the load line. Burning wood, the vessel would carry about four days' supply of fuel. Burning coal, she carried twelve days' supply. Moncaret said that the vessel would be vulnerable to bombshells and hotshot, and that, furthermore, she could be boarded. The displacement of the ship at service draft was 1,450 tons, a figure Moncaret obtained from a copy of the original plan given him by Noah Brown. In 1935, Lieutenant Ralph R. Gurley, U.S. Navy, attempted a reconstruction in sketches of the vessel published in his article, The USS Fulton, the First in the U.S. Naval Institute proceedings. The reconstruction was based on the patent office drawing prepared for Fulton and published by Stuart and Bennett and the foregoing French sources. The patent office drawing showed the engine was an inclined cylinder, and Lieutenant Gurley shows this in his sketch. In his text on page 323, he says, the engine was an inclined single-cylinder affair with a four-foot base and a five-foot stroke. Gurley's attempt to reconstruct the steam battery is the only one known to the author. 
Copenhagen plans. In 1960, Kiel Grasmussen, naval architect of the Danish Greenland Company, was requested by the author to inspect in the Danish Royal Archives at Copenhagen a folio of American ship plans, the index of which had listed some Civil War river monitors. Mr. Rasmussen found the monitor plans had been withdrawn, but discovered that three plans of Fulton steam battery existed, as well as plans of the first Princeton, a screw sloop of war. Copies of the steam battery's plans were obtained at Copenhagen in September of 1960 through the courtesy of the archivist, and were found to consist of the lines copied in 1817 in inboard profile and arrangement, and a sail and rigging plan. From these, the reconstruction for a scale model was drawn and is presented here with reproductions of the original drawings upon which the reconstruction is based. It is apparent that Moncaret's description is generally accurate. The vessel is a catamaran made of two holes, double-ended and exactly alike. The outboard sides are molded with round bilges. The inboard sides are straight and flat, as though a hole had been split along the middle line and then planked up flat where split. The holes are separated by the race, in which the paddle wheel is placed at mid-length. The top sides are made elliptical at the ends, and the midsection shows a marked tumble home over the thick topside planking, but less on the molded lines. The lines plan agreed rather closely to Moncaret's description of the hull. After careful fairing, it was found the lines drawing would produce a vessel 153 feet, 2 inches, overall outside the stems, or about 150 feet over the planked rabbits, with a molded beam of 56 feet and extreme beam of 58 feet. The molded depth was 22 feet 9 inches, and the width of the race was 14 feet 10 inches plank to plank. The room and space of framing shown was 2 feet. The designed draft appears to be 13 feet, and this would bring the port sills 5 feet 6 inches above the load line, and the underside of the gun deck beams about 2 feet 9 inches above the load line. The lines plan is a Danish copy, probably of the building plan by Noah Brown, and may be based on the plan Moncaret obtained from Brown. The spar deck has the iron stanchions. Gurley translated these as chandeliers, which are set inboard four feet from the plank shear. This gives room for cotton bales outboard the stanchions to form a barricade. As will be seen by comparing the original Danish drawing with the model drawing, the construction indicates that the iron stanchions should be carried around the ends of the hull in the same manner as along the sides, since the lower ends of the iron stanchions pass through the spar deck and are secured to the inside of the inner ceiling of the gun deck. The rudders are as shown in the Danish drawing, and it is supposed that they were operated ferryboat fashion, one at each end of the vessel. Hence each pair of rudders was toggled together by a cross-yoke. This was probably operated by a tiller. Possibly the cross-yokes and tillers were of iron, pivoted under the beams of the gun-deck close to the ends of the ship. Tiller ropes led from a tackle under the gun-deck through trunks to the spar-deck, where the wheels were placed. This allowed proper sweep to the tillers and operation of each pair of rudders. The paddle-wheel was apparently of iron, with wooden blades, and agrees with Moncaret's description. In the plan for the model, it is shown raised 18 inches above the original design position to agree with trial requirements. It should be observed that the close CL-to-CL -CL frame spacing created a hull having frames touching one another, 
at least above the turn of the bilge, so the vessel was almost solid timber, before being planked and sealed from keel to about the load line. The sides are not only heavily planked, but after the frames were sealed with extraordinarily heavy square timbering, a supplementary solid vertical framing was introduced inboard and another ceiling added. The sides scale about five feet from outside the plank to the inboard face of the inner ceiling at the level of the gun ports. The holes were tied together athwartship by the deck beams of the gun deck and spar deck, except in the wake of the paddle wheel. Knees were placed along the sides of the race at alternate gun deck beams. In addition, the twelve one-foot square timbers crossing the race at the rabbits of the holes, mentioned by Moncaret, are shown. These must have created extraordinary resistance, even at the low speed of the steamer. The deck details shown are the results of reconstruction of the inboard works. History of the Double Hole Craft The use of catamaran holes, or double holes, has been periodically popular with ship designers since the time of Charles II of England. The earliest of such vessels known, in the present day, were four sloops, or shallops, designed 1673 to 1687 by Sir William Petty, who was an inventor in the field of naval architecture and received some attention from Charles II and from the Royal Society. The first Petty experiment, the Simon and Jude, later called Invention One, was launched October 28, 1662. She was designed with two holes cylindrical in cross-section, each two feet in diameter and twenty feet long. A platform connected the holes, giving the boat a beam of a little over nine feet. She had a twenty-foot mast, stepped on one of the cross-beams connecting the holes with a single gaff cell. In sailing trials, she beat three fast boats, the King's Barge, a large pleasure boat, and a man-of-war's boat. This double bottom, also called a sluice boat or a cylinder, was later lengthened at the stern to make her thirty feet overall. The king did not support Petty, to the latter's great disappointment, and Petty next built a larger double bottom, invention too. This catamaran was lapstrake construction. Not much is known of this boat except that she beat the regular Irish packet boat running between Hollyhead and Dublin in a race each way, winning a $20 wager. She was launched in July 1663. What became of her is not recorded. A third and still larger boat, the experiment, launched December 22, 1664, appears to have been a large sloop. This vessel sailed by way of the Thames in April 1665 and went to Oporto, Portugal. She left Portugal October 20, 1665, for home, but apparently went down with all hands in a severe storm. For eighteen years, Petty did no more with this type. But finally, in July 1684, he laid down a still larger sloop with two decks and a mast standing fifty-five feet above her upper deck. She was named St. Michael the Archangel, and is probably the design of Pepe's book of miscellaneous illustrations in Magdalene College, Cambridge, England. This vessel proved unmanageable and was a complete failure. Though the double canoes of the Pacific Islands were probably known to some in Europe in 1662, there is no evidence that Petty based his designs on such craft. He appears to have produced his designs spontaneously from independent observations and resulting theories. 
before Petty concluded his experiments, a number of double-hull craft had been produced by others. However, some double-craft, such as double-shallops, may have been double-enders, as shown by a double-mosses boat of the 18th century and later. The use of two canoes, joined by a platform or by poles, was common in colonial times. In Maryland and Virginia, dugouts so joined were used to transport tobacco down the tidal creeks to vessels loading. Such craft were also used as ferries. M. V. Burington's Chesapeake Bay log canoes and Paul Wilstack's Potomac Landings illustrate canoes used in this manner. A catamaran galley, two round bottom hulls, flat on the inboard side, a hole split along the center line and the inboard faces planked up, 113 feet long, and each hull a 7-foot molded beam, 6 foot 6 inches molded depth, and placed 13 feet apart, was proposed by Sir Sidney Smith, Royal Navy, in the 1790s, and built by the British Admiralty. Named Taurus, she is shown by the Admiralty draft to have been a double-ender, with cabins amidships on the platform, an iron rudder at each end, between the hulls, steered with tillers to unship, and with a ramp at one end. The plans are undated, signed by Captain Sir Sidney Smith, and a field carriage gun is shown at the ramp end of the boat. This and the heavy rocker in the keels suggests the Taurus was intended for a landing boat. No sailing rig is indicated, but tolls for twelve oars or sweeps on each side are shown. The oarsmen apparently sat on deck, or on low seats, with stretchers and hatches between each pair of holes. Admiralty Collection of Drafts, the National Maritime Museum, Greenwich, England. Another experimenter with a double-hole type of vessel was a wealthy Scot named Patrick Miller, who was particularly interested in manual propulsion of vessels, employing geared capstans to operate paddle wheels. In a letter dated June 9, 1790, Millard offered Gustav III of Sweden a design for a double-hulled 144-gun ship of the line, rating as a 130-gun ship, propelled by manually operated capstans connected to a paddle-wheel between the hulls. She was rigged to sail with five masts, and was to be 246 feet long, 63 feet beam, and 17 feet draft. The hulls were 16 feet apart. This project was submitted by the king to Frederick Henrik of Chapman, the great Swedish naval architect who made an adverse report. Chapman pointed out in great detail that the weight of the armament, the necessary hull structure, the stores, crew, ammunition, spars, sails, rigging, and gear would greatly exceed Miller's design displacement. He also pointed out the prime fault of catamarans under sail, slow turning in stays. He suggested that the speed under sail would be disappointing. He doubted that a double-hull ship of such size could be built strong enough to stand a heavy sea. He remarked that English records showed that a small vessel of the catamaran type had been built between 1680 and 1700, which had sailed well, this may have been one of Petty's boats, and that thirty-six years ago he had seen eight miles from London a similar boat that had been newly built by Lord Baltimore and was about fifty feet long. This was a failure, and was discarded after one trial. Therefore, said Chapman, the Miller project was not new, but rather an old idea. Chapman's final remark is perhaps the best illustration of his opinion of the catamaran. Despite all this, 
two whole vessels are completely sound when the theory can be properly applied that is in vessels of very light weight and of small size with crews of one or two men a model of such a double hull ship the experiment built at leith scotland in seventeen eighty six by j laurie was sent to sweden by miller she was one hundred and five feet long thirty one feet beam and cost three thousand pounds this vessel arrived in the summer of seventeen ninety and king gustav in a letter dated july twenty six ordered colonel michael ankersvard to welcome the vessel at stockholm the king presented miller with a gold snuff-box and a painting was made of the vessel the experiment had five paddle-wheels in tandem between her hulls operated by geared capstans on deck these gave her a speed of five knots but caused the crew to suffer from exhaustion in a short time the vessel was badly strained in a storm and was finally abandoned at st petersburg russia miller later turned to the idea of employing steam instead of manual power and built a twenty-five-foot double-hulled pleasure boat of iron fitted with a steam engine built by william symington also named experiment she was an apparent success so miller had a sixty-foot boat built of the double-hull design and fitted with an engine built by symington she reached a speed of seven miles per hour on the fourth and clyde canal however miller lost interest when he found that the symington engine was unreliable and that great britain showed very little public support for such projects fulton was acquainted with symington's work and probably had heard of miller's vessels at any rate he employed the double-hull principle in his steam ferry-boats, the first of which was the Jersey, a 188-ton vessel built by Charles Brown, which began service July 2, 1812. The next year he had a sister ship built, the York. These vessels were based on his patent drawing of 1809. In 1814 he had another vessel of this type built, the Nassau. It was, therefore, logical that he should apply this design to the steam battery. The double-hull design had worked well in these ferries, and the design would give protection from shot to the paddle-wheel. The battery would have the ability to run forward or astern, so as not to be exposed to a raking fire from the enemy while maneuvering in action. The application of this ferry-boat principle to the battery reduced the need for extreme maneuverability, the catamaran's weakest point, even at low speed. The resistance factors in the design are of relatively small importance, for the speed possible under steam in this period was very low. However, the plans show an apparently efficient whole form for the power available, aside from the drag of the beams across the race in the vicinity of the keel. The displacement was adequate. The height of the gun deck above the water at the race made the battery unsuitable for rough water operation. But there is no evidence that Fulton or the sponsors of the vessel considered the battery as a coastwise or seagoing steamer. However, the clearance of the gun deck above the water and the dip of the paddle wheel would have made the additional weight of an upper or spar deck battery prohibitive, even had experience in action prove it desirable. Sail and Inboard Plans The sail and rigging plan is likewise a Danish copy and shows the two mastered latine rig employed. The hull is shown with bulwarks and gun ports on the spar deck, but no other evidence that the battery was finished in this manner has been found. The rig resembles that of some Hosea Fox's designs. For Jeffersonian gunboats, double-enders, designed to sail in either direction but without the jibs. 
The topmasts do not appear to be more than signal poles, and apparently were not fitted with sails. However, some European latiners did have triangular topsails over a latine, and it is possible the battery may have carried such sails. Considering the stability and displacement of the battery, the rig is very small and not sufficiently effective. Shrouds were not required. The masts were supported by runners that were shifted when the yards were reversed, and in tacking. Apparently the jib stays also could be slackened off so that the latine yards would not have to be dipped under them. The inboard profile is on tracing paper, and the notes are in French. This drawing is of a simplified whole form having flat-bottom holes with chines. It is possible that this is a tracing of a preliminary drawing obtained by Marstier or Moncaret, but no documentation can be found. Its importance is that it shows in some detail the engine and boilers, as well as the wheelbox and another drawing of the paddle-wheel, more or less duplicating the wheel shown in the Danish plan. No details of the deck arrangements are shown in any of the plans, except for the dome skylight over the fire-room in the boiler hole. Both the lines plan and the inboard drawing show construction midsections and hull connections. These plans show that the engine was not inclined, but rather was vertical, contrary to Fulton's patent drawing. The piston rod and the crosshead obviously passed through its gun deck in a large hatch. Also, it is plain that there must have been large hatches afore and abaft the wheelbox to make the stepped wheelbox construction desirable. There also must have been a hatch in the gun deck under the domed skylight. It is improbable that the engine and skylight hatches were used for ladderways, passing scuttles, or companionways. The boilers are shown in the inboard profile, about as described and drawn by Marstier, but with two stacks on each boiler, one to each flue. Marstier's sketch in his report on American Steamship shows the flues of each boiler trunked into a single stack. The battery had two boilers, and the stacks are at the boiler's fire door end. The steam lines came off the crown of the boilers and probably passed through the ends of the wheelbox to the engine. A trunk for the steam lines would undoubtedly have been necessary. The engine is shown to have had counterbalanced side levers, one on each side, and a single flywheel on the outboard side. The cylinder is over the condenser, or cistern, connected by the steam line and valve box on the side. The cylinder crosshead is shown in the inboard profile to have reached the underside of the beams of the upper deck. The crosshead was connected by two connecting rods to side levers. These levers operated the paddle wheel by connecting rods to cranks on the paddle wheel shaft. There is another pair of connecting rods from the side levers to the crosshead of the air pump. All connecting rods are on one arm of the side levers, the other end having only a counterbalance weight beyond the fulcrum bearing. The flywheel has a shaft fitted with two gears, and is driven through idler gears from gears on the paddlewheel shaft. It turns at about twice the speed of the paddlewheel. No other pumps or fittings are shown in the engine hole, although manual pumps were probably fitted to fill and empty the boilers. Piping is not shown. The four rudders, toggled in pairs, are shown in both the lines and inboard drawings, but the shape is different in the two plans. Operation must have been by a tiller under the gun deck beams. The outer end of the tiller may have been pivoted on the toggle bar and the inboard end fitted, as previously described, with steering cable or chain tackles. 
This seems to be the only practical interpretation of the evidence. Reconstructing the Plans In the model, it was necessary to reconstruct the deck arrangements without enough contemporary description. The outboard appearance and whole form, rig, and arrangement of armament require no reconstruction, for all that is of importance is shown in the lines and rig drawings, or in the inboard profile. The masts are shown to have been stepped over the race on the gun deck. The iron stanchions are shown in the lines drawing and in the construction section. However, their position at the ends of the battery are apparently incorrectly shown in the original lines plan. The construction section shows these stanchions to have been stepped on the inside face of the inner ceiling, and as the ceiling structure was carried completely around the ship, the stanchions in the ends must have been placed inboard, as along the sides. The bowsprit was above deck, and would probably be secured in the nighthead timbers at the ends of the hull, as well as by the heel bits shown in the Danish lines drawing. With the riding bits shown inboard of the heel bits at each end of the vessel, it is obvious that she would work her ground tackle at both ends, and would therefore require two capstans. The wheelbox would prevent effective use of a single one. The capstans might be double-headed, as in some large frigates and ships of the line. As to the remaining deck fixtures, hatches and fittings, these must be entirely a matter of speculation. Ladderways, passing scuttles, hatches, trunks, galley, heads, and cabins were obviously required in a fighting ship and can only be located on the theory that when completed, the battery was a practical vessel. It had been stated that the officers' cabins were on the race. The logical place for the heads, galley, wardroom, and mess also would be over the race, giving the remaining part of the gun deck for the necessary hatches, ladderways, trunks, etc., in the two holes, space required for armament, and to sling the hammocks of a watch below. As the vessel was never fully manned, apparently the space for hammocks is not a serious problem in a reconstruction. If the vessel had been manned as proposed by 500 men, hammocks for over 200 would have been required, which would give very crowded quarters in view of the limited space available. Though no specific requirements were stated in the reports of the trials, it seems reasonable to suppose that additional hatches were cut in the decks to improve the fireroom ventilation. In the reconstruction drawings, these hatchways, as well as the other deck openings and deck fittings, such as bilge pumps, companionways, skylights, binnacles, wheels, and wheel rope trunks, cable trunks, steam pipe casings, and stack fiddlies, have been located in an effort to meet the imagined requirements of the working of a ship of this unusual form. There are some unanswered questions that arose in the preparation of the reconstruction drawings. As has been shown, the original inboard arrangement plan found in Copenhagen shows four smokestacks, while Maristier's sketch of the vessel's boilers shows trunked flues, indicating that two stacks were used. It is possible that the boilers were first fitted so that four stacks were required. Alterations made as a result of steaming trials may well have included the introduction of trunked flues and the final use of two stacks in line fore and aft. This would have required a rearrangement of the fiddly hatches amidships. Another troublesome question was the doubtful arrangement of the four companionways on the spar deck. Perhaps only two were fitted, one on each side of the officers' staterooms, while the ladderways at the crew's end of the ship were simple ladder hatches. 
the decision to use four bilge pumps is based upon the lack of drag in the keel of the hulls, which would prevent accumulation of bilge water at one end of the hull. The use of four single-barrel pumps instead of four double-barrel pumps may be questioned, for chain pumps requiring two barrels would have been practical. Allowance for stores was made by use of platforms in the hold. It is known from statements made to the Court of Inquiry that the magazines were amidships and that a part of these was close to the boilers. Fuel and water would be in the lower hold under the platforms. Hatches and ladderways are arranged to permit fueling the ship. A few prints or drawings of the ship, aside from the patent drawing, had been found. There are two prints that show the launch of the vessel. One, a print of 1815, is in possession of the Mariner's Museum, Newport News, Virginia, and is reproduced in Alexander Crosby Brown's Twin Ships, Notes on the Chronological History of the Use of Multiple Hold Vessels. A poor copy of this print appears on page 13 of Bennett's Steam Navy of the United States, and another and inaccurate sketch is shown on page 8. These pictures were of no use in the reconstruction as they show no details that are not in the Copenhagen plans. The patent drawing does not show deck details, and in fact does not represent the vessel as built in any respect other than in being a catamaran with paddlewheel amidships between the hulls. The steam battery did not have any particular influence on the design of men of war that followed her. In the first place, steam power was not viewed with favor by naval officers generally. This was without doubt due to prejudice, but engines in 1820 to 1830 were still unreliable when required to run for long periods, as experienced by the early ocean-going steamers. The great weight of the early steam engines and their size in relation to power were important, and also important were practical objections that prevented the design of efficient naval ocean steamers until about 1840. Even then, the paddle wheels made them very vulnerable in action. Until the introduction of the screw propeller, it was not possible to design a really effective ocean-going naval steamer. Hence, until about 1840 to 45, sail remained predominant in naval vessels for ocean service, and steamers were accepted only in coast defense and towing services, or as dispatch vessels. No immediate use of the double hull in naval vessels of the maritime powers resulted from the construction of the steam battery. The flat-bottomed chine-belt design employed by Fulton in North River, Raritan, and other early steamboats was utilized in the design for a projected steamer by the British Admiralty in 1815-16. This vessel was about 76 feet overall, 16-foot beam, and 8-foot 10 inches deep in hold. Her design was for a flat bottom, chine-built hull with no fore-and-aft camber in the bottom, a sharp entrance, and a square tuck stern with slight overhang above the cross seam. Her side frames were straight and vertical amidships, but curved as the bow and stern were approached. She was to be a size paddle-wheel steamer, and her hull was diagonally braced. The wheel and engine were to be about amidships, but she was dead flat for about fourteen feet. However, the engine and boilers were not installed. The engine was utilized ashore for pumping, and the vessel was completed in the Deptford Yard as a sailing ship. Under the name Congo, 
she was employed in the African Coast Survey. Her plan is in the Admiralty Collection of Drafts at the National Maritime Museum, Greenwich, England. The double hull continued to be employed in both steam and team ferryboats in the United States and in England and France. A few river and lake steamers were also built with this design of hull. Continued efforts to obtain fast sailing by use of the double hull produced a number of sailing catamarans. Of these, the Harrishoff catamarans of the 1870s showed high speed when reaching in a fresh breeze. Designs for double-hulled steamers appeared during the last half of the 19th century. In 1874, the Castalia, a large double-hull iron cross-channel steamer, was built by the Thames Ironworks Company at Blackwall, England. She was 290 feet long, and each hull had a beam of 17 feet. The paddle wheel was placed between the hulls, and, ready for sea, she drew six and a half feet. She ran the twenty-two miles between Dover and Calais in one hour and fifty minutes, a speed much slower than that of the paddle-wheel cross-channel steamers having one hull. Another double-hull steamer was built for the service by Hawthorne, Leslie and Company, Newcastle-on-Tyne, Scotland, in 1877. First named Express, she was renamed Calais Douvre when she went into service in May 1878. Her length was 302 feet, her extreme beam 62 feet, and each hull had a beam of 18 feet 3 inches. She drew 6 foot 7 and a half inches ready for sea, and the paddle wheel was between the hulls. On her trials she made 14 knots and burned coal excessively. Sold to France in 1880, she was taken out of service in 1889. Though popular, she was not faster than the single-hull steamers in the service, and had been a comparatively expensive vessel to build and operate. The many attempts to produce a very fast double-hull steamer and large sailing vessels have led to disappointment for their designers and sponsors. In the history of naval architecture, since Petty's time, there have been a number of periods when the new old idea of the double-hull has become popular. Craft of this type have been commonly well-publicized, but on the whole, their basic designs have followed the same principles over and over again and have not produced the sought-for increase in speed and handiness. In very recent years, there has been a revival in interest in sailing double-hull boats that is enthusiastic as to very small craft and somewhat restrained as to large boats. A few projects are under development for double-hole craft, power, and sail, of over 90-foot length, including an oceanographic research vessel. In general, however, the performance of double-hole boats has shown that Chapman's estimate of the type was reasonably correct and that there are limitations, particularly in maneuverability in the double-hole craft that could have been found by reference to the history of past experiments with the type. End of section 14.